This week on Strength Check, we're going to be talking about Al Capone, Kip Kinkle, Jerry Sandusky, and Paul Manafort, and the ways that people respond to crime, especially cases like this that are in the news so on. We're also going to be talking a little bit about some of the material that we covered last week, um, just a little bit of postscript on that. So let's get after it. What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak, the Strength Check. Thanks for tuning in. Before we get into this week's show, I just want to give a quick programming note. For those of you who have found the show on SoundCloud, this is the last episode that's going to be up there. You should be able to find us on all the podcast sites now. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify. So pretty much any place that you get your podcasts, you can find us there. But I didn't want to ghost the people who found us on SoundCloud. So this show will go up there uh, as soon as Mark is done producing it. Um, and we're happy with it, but that'll be the last one that you can find up there. So give us a, a, a like, subscribe us, subscribe to us, wherever you find your podcast, leave us a review, um, tell your friends, tell your people about us. Uh, before I get into talking about like the true crime stuff that I wanted to cover this week, I, I wanted to do a little bit of a postscript about last week's show. So after I finished recording last week, uh, two things happened. The first was that the software that I used to record the show crashed. And I spent like a good like five minutes or so in the sort of like purgatory of do I have to record, re-record the entire show? What do I do? And like praying to all of the podcasts and all of the audio gods, the entire pantheon of human history that I hadn't lost the show. Um, and so thankfully it was still there. After that, uh, as I was like kind of reflecting on what I had just talked about, it occurred to me that there's a possibility that somebody could listen to the show and come away thinking that I am like pro drug use. And I don't want to give that impression. So that's something that comes up when you're when you're talking about bodily autonomy and that people have the right to, to put into themselves anything that they want to put into themselves. Like, that's part of the philosophy of bodily autonomy, right? So as I was thinking about it and like how did I want to cover it, like my first reaction was to jump back on the mic and add like a little PS to that episode to say, oh, by the way, like, you know, drugs are bad. But I wanted to think about it. And I wanted to see how the episode was received. And I decided that I want to come on today and say that it's okay to be a hypocrite about stuff. And it's okay to not really know what your stance is. So on one hand, I, I do believe that people have the right to, to do to their bodies what they want to do to their bodies, as long as they're not hurting anybody else. But I also am of the belief that there are a lot of substances that are out there that we can put into our bodies that we shouldn't. And that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And so as far as like, what do you do in, in cases like Scott's or like this broader sort of societal issue around substance use, you know, yes, there is some kind of like, obviously a neurological thing you have to consider, right? Like there are people who, for whatever reason, might be more prone to developing a substance use disorder or um, maybe it's an addictive personality. I don't know. Like, I'm not a neurologist. I can't really talk about that stuff. But what I can talk about is that there are much broader 
societal issues that create all the suffering that can push somebody to want to have that escape, right? So rather than trying to demonize and vilify individual behavior, people who feel so desperate or alienated or hurt or angry or whatever that make them want to drink or use any other kinds of prescription drugs or heroin or whatever, I think the the more important discussion that people need to have uh, is like what's causing that suffering in the first place that's making them want to use. And I think that's a much bigger discussion and a much scarier discussion, which is probably why we haven't had it yet. And we've had so much fun and so much success locking up people who are using. We've avoided that like much bigger conversation that has to be had. So maybe that's something we can talk about later on future episodes of the show. I don't know. But like, I think that's where I want to leave Scott's story, right? Is to be thinking about where that suffering is coming from. And if you are somebody out there who's like a little unsure about your own use and like what you're doing and what you're putting into yourself, I think that it's a tough conversation that you need to have, you know, with yourself in the mirror, right? Why are you doing this? And where's that pain in your life? And and is there anything that can be done to try to alleviate some of that pain? So um, on that note, uh, I want to close the, the book on Scott for now. And again, like in the spirit of being a hypocrite, right? I said last week that I was done talking about this. I wanted to move on with my life. And then I can't wait to come back on this show and, and keep blathering on about him some more. So let's move on. So one of the things that I, I think I want to use this show for is kind of like true crime adjacent type of stuff. There's a lot better, many, many other podcasts out there that cover true crime and cases in much more depth people much smarter than i covering this stuff and so i'm not trying to like get in on that action at all i want to talk about it more broadly i think so this week um in the news as some of you might have seen paul manafort who was one of the president's fixers i guess for lack of a better term one of his boys was sentenced to 47 months in prison and a lot of people were really angry about that and mad that you know the the prosecution had asked for a much 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 longer period of incarceration for him and the judge had taken the sentencing um as an opportunity to kind of grandstand a little bit and i talk about what a great guy paul manafort is and this is really a travesty and it created a lot of outrage right that this guy has done so many bad things that 47 months seemed like a, a slap on the wrist and it's really not is the thing Anybody out there who's like throwing about how they can do 47 months in prison standing on their head is lying, really. And as I was reading through, like, um, I, I started following a lot of like legal people on the Red Hot Twitter machine and like seeing some of their takes on this. One that really stood out to me was from a woman named Josie Duffy Rice, who is brilliant, who talked about how this is really just sad. You know, the whole the whole thing revolving around Paul Manafort and the things that he has um, been accused of being involved with and that like we pretty much know that he's done um, all of the corruption and, and everything is just a sad story 
And that's really the appropriate reaction to this, not anger at whether or not you feel that his sentence was too lenient or not, but really like sad that we're here to begin with. And so I started thinking about that and um, how that that sadness and anger like tie into other major cases, which is where I landed on Al Capone and Kip Kinkle and Jerry Sandusky as other um, examples of this. And I think that they all fit in because at least for um, Capone and Sandusky and Manafort, there are people that really admire them, um, not because of, not necessarily because of what they did, but because of who they were involved with, right? In the United States, we've always had, well, maybe not always, but recently have had like a lot of, of admiration and, and almost worship for, for organized crime, or at least like the image of organized crime and the mob and the mafia and, and the whole like Godfather and Goodfellas and speak with Jerry Sandusky because of his involvement at Penn State football and how much we really worship football in the United States and, and all of that. At least around here where, where I live in Pennsylvania, there were a lot of people who were defending him and defending the university, at least defending the university's involvement, I guess, or, or what they knew or didn't know or what Joe Paterno knew or didn't know. And then with Kip Kinkle, um, who, if you've never heard of him, he was one of the first major school shooters in the United States. While there aren't necessarily like mainstream people who are admiring school shooters, there are definitely there definitely is a subculture of alienated, angry boys who might look at a guy like Kip Kinkle and what he did, and say that they can see themselves in him. Right. So all four of these stories are really sad because of all the people that were hurt. Because of just, I don't know, like the entire atmosphere around it, I guess. So um, Al Capone, I guess we'll start there. We'll go chronologically. Al Capone's really like a flash in the pan in, in terms of organized crime in the U.S. I think he was just kind of in the right place at the right time. But he's still, you know, long after his death. When I, in classes, when I offer students the opportunity to write about any like famous criminal or case that they know about, Al Capone is a really popular one because he represents a lot of what people think of when they think about the mob. And in reality, he was, like I said, in the right place at the right time, it seems like. And he had a very fast rise to power and a very, very, very fast fall from grace. So in basically the way that it went was he, he became um, boss, I guess, for lack of a better term, in Chicago in the mid-1920s. Uh, in 1929 was the famous St. Valentine's Day Massacre where he attempted to assassinate a rival of his, Bugs Moran, who ran the Northside Gang in Chicago. Um, Capone's guys disguised themselves or dressed up as Chicago police, raided Moran's people, um, lined them up in a garage, and shot them. And when news of the massacre hit the papers and there were pictures of the, of the people who had died there, Capone, who had been like a really kind of like popular figure in Chicago. Like, I mean, this is prohibition and he's breaking the law and he's almost like the people's champion, right? For doing this stuff, operating in plain sight. He had a lot of, he had bribed all the right people. There was, I won't say like no big deal, but he didn't have like this terrible reputation either, at least until the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And then people see what happens. And then within three years of that, he's in prison. When he, when he was sent to prison, his health um, took a, like, it declined very quickly. He was really afraid for him, his life in prison. He became like a, a shell, I guess, of a, of a person. 
and uh, his health just steadily declined. The decision was made to send him to Alcatraz for his own safety, and in 1939 he was released, basically like hospice care, I guess. And within so that was 10 years from the St. Valentine's Day massacre to being released from prison, and he died in 1947, I want to say. 47 or 49, late 40s. He had syphilis. The disease had destroyed his brain. Um, doctors said that he had the, the mentality of a 12-year-old um, around the time of his death. And it's sad, right? Like, here's this, this guy um, who a lot of people held up as, like, a hero for a few different reasons, who had this, this major paranoia, this rivalry with another mobster um, whose life ne- never recovered either. Um, Bugs Moran, the massacre pretty much decimated any kind of organized crime work he was doing in Chicago. He eventually got out of out of organized crime, he said, altogether, and went back to being like a petty thief. And he died in the 1950s. So these two guys who were like the kings of their day both had these really sad endings. And I, I say sad not in like, you know, I'm crying at the end of the movie kind of sad, but like, it's just kind of pitiful, you know, just kind of like sad. The next person I want to talk about briefly, this this is something that's going on long, longer than I thought, uh, is Kip Kinkle. So Kip Kinkle was a school shooter. Like I said, Kip was an angry young man who killed both of his parents and then shot up his school. Uh, there's a great documentary about this on PBS, streaming on, pre, on PBS, um, called The Killer at Thurston High, um, if you want to know more about Kip. I really recommend that documentary because at the end of it, um, you get to hear some audio from Kip's intake interview where he had just been, he had killed his parents the night before, he went to school, shot up his school, when he ran out of ammunition and uh, threw down the, I think he had a rifle, threw that down and went for the the pistol on his ankle um, or another gun that he had on himself. The other kids in the cafeteria who were still alive, like bum rushed him basically and beat the bejesus out of him uh, until the police could get there. And so here's this kid who's been, um, who's just murdered several people, killed his parents, had been assaulted by his classmates in self-defense and I'm not like putting any kind of blame or shame on those kids like obviously they did the right thing uh, to try to defend themselves but you hear this audio of him um, being interviewed and he sounds like a little boy he doesn't sound like this cold-blooded monster who just killed all of these people he sounds like a little kid and that's sad right uh, that's that's not something it's not a case where you want to sit there and be really, really furious at him and want to, you know, get some kind of revenge on him for what he did because he, to me, he sounds like a little kid. And, you know, when you get mad at kids, that anger really has a limit to it, you know, or it should at least. So that's sad, right? This, this boy, this child who felt so alienated and so marginalized and isolated that he did the worst possible thing he could have to try to 
get out of that and is still paying for it to this day. So that's a sad story. So those two um, really disparate, disjointed, different, I don't know, D words, <laughs> uh, cases, I think are good examples of how we should respond to the Paul Manafort stuff, that this is really sad. And Jerry Sandusky too, I think belongs in that conversation, right? Jerry Sandusky did terrible things to boys while he had power over them at Penn State. And there were a lot of people who, in response to his conviction and his incarceration, were furious and were wishing terrible things on him while he was in prison. And like that's the thing about doing this stuff well, you know, is that people do terrible things to each other and the right response isn't necessarily to wish terrible things on them. That anger doesn't really get us anywhere. So why I wanted to say all this um, in connection with what we talked about last week was that I think it's really important to like interrogate your emotions, your emotional responses to things. Not that it's bad to have emotions, not that it's bad to have an emotional reaction. It's totally understandable. It's it's natural. It's healthy. Like you should be feeling this way. But I think that too many people probably stop at just being consumed by that anger, by that that need for vengeance or whatever, that bloodlust, rather than think about, well, why am I mad? What is it about this specific situation that has me so angry? And how consistent am I in that belief, right? So if you are mad at Paul Manafort uh, for everything that he has done, everything that he's alleged to have done, what is, like, how are you living that type of justice in your own life, I guess? Like, how does that affect how you might view other politicians? Um, how does that affect how you view politicians that you might be more aligned with if you're not somebody who's a supporter of the president? Because if you're, if you're mad about that, but you're not mad about corruption or dirty dealings or shady stuff or whatever um, that people that you support are doing, then, um, like we talked about how it's okay to be hypocritical, but maybe not in this way right? Maybe we're being inconsistent with what we consider to be justice, then that's not a good thing. I don't know, though. I'm just one guy. I don't know that much. The last thing that I wanted to talk about really quickly before we we cut tonight is this idea of hope um, because a lot of what we're going to be talking about on strength check as we go through however long this project lasts um, a lot of what we're going to be talking about is is sad you know there's nothing really fun to talk about the opioid epidemic and there's nothing really fun and happy to talk about like true crime stories like so much of it is, is really dark and depressing and it, it's not cheerful in any way and before I recorded tonight, I was thinking about this and like, how do you how do you frame this stuff in a way that can get people to listen to your show, to listen to our show? And there's this quote from um, Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy, who is a phenomenal um, attorney. And he says that the opposite of poverty is justice. And when I first read that in Just Mercy, like it, it was one of those moments where I felt really rattled. And as far as the show goes, I think that's something we need to keep in mind. Like focusing on substance use and mental health and violence 
um, we need to be thinking about what justice actually means if we're not going to define justice as just revenge. And so as far as dealing with the sadness goes and the anger and trying to find like some positivity out of this, I don't think that the opposite of sadness is happy or cheerful. I think that the opposite of sadness is hope and that we can tell these stories and we can share these stories with each other as a way to try to find avenues to be hopeful. There's an activist that I really, really admire. She's she's brilliant. Her name is Miriam Kaba. Um, you can follow her on Twitter at Prison Culture. Um, and she talks about how hope is a discipline, that you have to put in the work to be hopeful. Because it's so easy, I think, to just fall into that sense of, of madness and cynicism and anger and be angry at everything. It's a lot more work to be hopeful. It's a lot more work to be loving. It's a lot more work to be, to be caring to be optimistic, it's a lot more work to find justice than to just be mad. So I think one of the themes I want to have in the show is we talked about resilience and we talked about redemption and we talked about like it's important to be positive about stuff. I think I want to close this week by talking about or just reiterating um, what Miriam Kaba said so much better than I ever could um, in a million years. That hope is a discipline. So that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening. Um, you can contact us now. We have contact info. You can email us at strengthcheckpodcast at gmail.com if you have any feedback. Like I said, at the top of the show, we are up on iTunes and Spotify and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. So please leave us a review there. Um, the more stars, the better. Five stars if you love us. Five stars if you don't. You can follow us on Twitter at strengthcheck. You can follow me at Hey Dr. Will, H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Give us some feedback. Tell us what you want to hear about. Hope you like the show. Talk to you next week. All right. Bye.